Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast comes once again from the live show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank in London, MK3D. The shows tend to be so guest-packed that we split them over two podcast episodes. So, on last week's edition, you heard from Antonetta Alamat-Kuzjanovic about her new film Marina, and Eddie Marzen looked back on his career and chose a guilty pleasure. In this week's show, we hear from Johnny Flynn and Jason Isaacs, stars of the current release Operation Mincemeat and in a while Don Letts looks back at a life of rebel dread. So sit back, relax and enjoy a front row seat at MK3D recorded live at the BFI South Bank. Now you may or may not have noticed Listomania time um, there is a Bond anniversary Dr No is 60 years old which is a terrifying thought and in celebration of Dr No being 60 years old they are re-releasing all 25 of the canonical Bond films one week after each other going back into cinemas. So we thought, okay, all of this is going to lead up to World Bond Day, which is on the 5th of October. Here is a clip from Dr. No. This is 60 years old, and is this the first time this line is said on screen? We believe so. Here we go. Carter. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to, um, raise the limit? I have no objections. So, amazingly, 60 years old. So, we said, okay, well, we'll do a list of many. I'll do top five Bond films. It became slightly controversial. Here's why. Okay, so here is my top five Bond films. At number five, The Living Daylights, because I wanted to have a Timothy Dalton film in there, because I do think that Timothy Dalton is the great underrated Bond. And I do think Living Daylights is actually a perfectly decent film. So that was my number five. Number four, Doctor No, for reasons that we all just saw, because even after 60 years, it looks fantastic. Number three... Casino Royale, which was, I think, you know, the, the great sea change uh, in the Bond movies. Number two, Scaffold Humble. Thank you, it was uncanny. It was like she was in the room, wasn't it? And number one, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which 
still, and of course, you know, still to this day, I know everybody complains about uh, Lazenby, who was the youngest uh, of all the Bonds. Perfectly perfect uh, theme tune, best theme tune evs, and I think you know the first of the Bonds that had any you know it, it, real emotional heft. And I said, this is my list, and Nick went. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went, right, you do better. So ladies and gentlemen, after seven years of doing the show, please welcome Nick. <laughs> so, so my number five is Goldeneye. Because it's the first uh, Bond that I was able to take my kids to and they, they loved it. I thought the last Bond was great, so I'm going to put that at number four. We meet in the middle. That's the one that we agree on. Absolutely. This is the Bond movie that my parents took me to see, and I love it. It's got a great musical score as well. And for me, unbeatable. It's a simple question. Whose list was better? <laughs> and rather than doing shouty, because obviously, you know, one thing and another, we can do applause, okay? So, applause for Nick's list. <laughs> applause for my list. As of next month, Nick Jones, live in 3D. <laughs> okay, here is a trailer for a film which is uh, coming to cinemas this coming Friday. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. <laughs> We have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. Given the fascist network there, we could quite literally float the documents right into enemy hands. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. The plan is highly implausible. So when can it be ready? What say we start with the easy part and find ourselves a corpse? The thing is, the Germans have scrutinized every detail of our fallen man. Where are his legs? He must be as real as you or I. He would carry a letter from his wife professing her deep love for him. Very good. And he would carry her photograph. My contribution to the mission for a seat at the table. Although. What if the autopsy reveals he didn't die of drowning? Or if the briefcase is returned to us without the Germans seeing its contents? Charles, why on earth do you keep poking holes in our plan? I'm preemptively poking. Coming soon to cinemas, I'm delighted to say we have not one, but two of the stars of Operation Mincemeat. Please welcome Johnny Flynn and Jason Isaacs. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
<sighs> Johnny, I'm going to turn that microphone so it's more sort of sure directional. You're not going to be 60, you're going to be 59. You're the same age as me. Don't I am speed the same through. Age as you. Yes. Thanks very much. But you look half my age, which is kind of really annoying. Do you they... dye your hair? No, they dye my hair on oh, okay. film. <laughs> I don't dye my hair. I've just come back from Toronto. I'm on American television. No okay. one has grey hair on television. Okay. Johnny, is your hair all your own? It's all my own, as far as I know, unless my wife's doing something in my sleep. <laughs> nice. yeah. How good is this Ian Fleming voice? It's I know, phenomenal. I know, I know, it's unbelievable. I know, I know. OK, so Operation Mincemeat, so-called, because the operation was actually called Operation Mincemeat, because... Well, actually, originally, it was going to be called Operation Trojan Horse, which is a pretty shitty idea for a secret uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, Young students in the audience. Go on, we'll just talk all day. Go on, you talk for a while. Go on. What was, why is it called Operation um, Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty grim. We've fucking done this all day long. We've done 50 right. interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, sorry. <laughs> okay, I have. It would happen. I'm so sorry. I'm going to tell this story now, okay? When, when we were at school together, right? One of the reasons, they cu- I, I tried to tell this story in the podcast the there, they cut it out of the podcast. One of the reasons that I wanted to be you above all people was because you were the first person to swear in an English class. And I genuinely thought, wow, swearing is big and clever because Jason Isaacs did it. You had, you had the first skateboard at school. You came to school wearing trainers and somehow never got detention for it. Desperate, and you swore in an English class. I was class. desperate to try and make friends and the only person caught in the net was you, thank God. <laughs> Yeah, I was absolutely... Anyway, Johnny. Meanwhile, Johnny. Operation Mincemeat. <laughs> I mean, it, I, don't know, I don't know about the mincemeat bit, but, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a dead corpse. There's a, there's a corpse. That's a tautology, isn't it? A dead, a dead corpse, yes. Um, As opposed to the alive corpse that yeah. they tried the first time. <laughs> there's, there, it was part of um, this thing called the Trout Memo, uh, which was a list of ruses that uh, came up with by... Um, Admiral Godfrey, that Jason That's plays with. Well remembered. And we, there's, there's some playful banter about how much um, uh, of a contribution Ian Fleming made to this, to these, this list of, of plots. But a lot, the ones that didn't get used by the Allied forces during the war, some of them ended up in, in bond plots. So he, he obviously wasn't worried about being sued. Hence, <laughs> I, so well, yeah, secret. They were only declassified That's true. quite That's recently true. in the papers. Godfrey must have been tearing his hair But just, just, just to be slightly, you know, prosaic and do the work thing and set up the story for a while, the Allies needed to land in Europe, and uh, the only place they could possibly land was Sicily, because you'd be an idiot to land anywhere else, and they had to fool uh, Germany into thinking they were going to land somewhere else. It was very, very difficult. And Godfrey, who I played, who M was based on, had a huge deception, a thing called Operation Barclay, which uh, involved setting up a fake headquarters in Cairo and missions in Greece and fake uh, intercepts. And uh, he had a bunch of people under him, including his assistant uh, um, Ian Fleming, but then people played by uh, Matthew and Colin, who uh, somehow, it was a list that he had originally written of 50 madcap ideas to fool the Germans, and they picked one out, so what about if we float a corpse up? And in our story, uh, Godfrey goes, well, that's a fucking terrible idea. Let's not do that, even though he'd come up with the original. Well, that's your job. Your job in the film is to say, that's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. But here's the thing. It actually was a terrible idea. And it, it had the capacity to go completely wrong uh, at 10 different stages, and did, uh, and yeah, was yeah. retrieved. Uh, and although in our story and history has proved him uh, to be, uh, that he maybe shouldn't have stood in its way, statistically, the rest, all the rest of the deception would have fallen apart yeah. if this had gone wrong, and the Allied invasion of Europe would have gone wrong. So, you know, the other 999 films out of 1,000, I'd look like the hero. 
but not in but this But they one. didn't make that one. <laughs> Johnny, the last time you came on the show was for Beast, and you came on with Jesse, and you brought a guitar, and you sang, because you have a, a very successful musical career as well. How hard is it to do the voice that you're doing in this? I mean, it, you, I mean obviously, you have a talent for accents and things, but how hard is it to do that character's voice? Um, uh, I, li I like that you mentioned that, because that, that is, for me, that's often the way in f to a character for me. I really, I really, and I, it really upsets me when a director asks me to just do my own voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I find that really hard, and it's sometimes the best thing for, for the piece, but um, for me it's really fun to, you know, some people like to start with the, sh the shoes or, you know, the hair or whatever, and for me, it's, it, I, maybe it's that musical thing. I really think about scenes musically. I think about beats and yeah. rhythms and um, pauses, and um, uh, so I look for that. And what was great about this is John Madden um, uh, met with me, and he, it, it, I didn't even get a script to start with. I got the, the kind of a version of what the narration would be. And originally it was slightly different. You, you weren't going to know who was talking till the end, and then there was right. a little reveal that it was Fleming writing his, his spy novel, and, um, it, and he was there watching it all unfold. And uh, the, the, so he wanted to know, it, before he would cast me, he wanted to know if I could do the voice, otherwise, otherwise there's no point in even sitting right. down together. And so he got me to record it loads and loads and loads, and I loved that, and I was doing something else, and I remember running home from set to the hotel every night and, and getting my um, microphone out and trying the voice and listening to him doing his uh, interviews and, and Desert Island Discs and things like that. Is there a technique to learning a voice, to learning an accent? Do you work with a voice coach or...? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I mean, it was, it was weird with this because the recordings of him are when he's, you know, 20 years older, when he's a successful author and he's on the BBC and everything. And, um, and he smoked about a million cigarettes smoked. a day. So the you voice do smoke changes. all the way through the we film, typing and smoking through. constantly. The guy, the guy in the song was 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 right. Uh, smoke does get in your eyes. Really <laughs> <laughs> Remember how odd it was. We, we we all smoked all the way through the film, except when we filmed in some of the government buildings where smoking was banned. Oh yeah. And, and clearly those were the meetings in which it would have been thick with yeah, smoke. Yeah. We had as many things burning in the ash. We couldn't even have anything burning in the ash, could we? I can't remember. So it yeah. Was, it was odd. We all were desperate to smoke. All I, of us I take it that neither of you do smoke now. No, and and you smoke those herbal honey rose, whatever they're called, things that are burn your throat, burn yeah. your throat and make your eyes go. You all look like Cheech and Chong. Okay, Everybody so, on the crew is complaining. Okay, so, sorry, so this is news to me. So the cigarettes that you smoke on a movie set are not cigarettes? No, they're not nicotine. No, no. They're still burning plants you're inhaling. They, it's not like they're healthy or anything, but yeah. I think you could... I th I, in, in America, it's illegal to smoke real cigarettes. Some it's, it's different from country to country. Mm. I know that on stage... In the UK, I think until recently you could still smoke real cigarettes because I, I I had problems with the herbal cigarettes yeah, and then I had awful. to swap back to real cigarettes and that's when I started smoking again, having given up because <laughs> I was smoking 15 cigarettes. Very disappointed, Johnny. I stopped again now. Yeah, good because obviously because also you you know you're a great singer and you need to protect your voice. Although never stop Tom Waits, I suppose. Also, interestingly, on the subject of accents, Nat King Cole, 100 cigarettes a day. No, cut that out. It's boring. Anyway, true. Right. <laughs> um, Sorry. They, they can't cut it out, it's literally a lot. Oh, it's sorry. Just, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they can't they're, get out your swearing. We can't do anything about that. On the subject of accents, because the other film that you have coming out, we are going to come back to Operation Mintsby, the other film you have um, coming out, The Outfit, you're playing an American gangster figure, and your accent in that is, again, absolutely perfect. Do you find it hard to 
click into an American accent? Uh, I, I, I always used to. The American was the hard, I was like, it was the kind of wall I couldn't climb. It was, it was, it's, and so many people can do it really, really well. But um, this was the thing that kind of broke the ice for me, the, the outfit, because I worked with a, co a, a really good coach. And I, I think I'd done it in a play. I was just a bit nervous. It's about confidence more than anything. And once you've spent a day or two doing it on set and it's gone well, you're like, okay, you forget about it. And it's but it's there. Chicago, right? Which is a very yeah. specific yeah. sound. Yeah, I worked with a Chicago, a coach in Chicago, doing it over Zoom, and and I, and I, I had to audition for it as well. I I did a tape for it, and I worked with the with the coach before doing my tape, and that's the first time I've ever done that. And and now I'm never looking back because it was right. brilliant. I got the job and. And I was so happy. Uh, I, I really wanted to be in it. I loved the script. And um, it was great to work with the coach. Yeah, I thought outfit was really, really good. Because I, I genuinely you know, didn't see the twists and turns coming. And I, it, you, but you said it's very much a, like a cineast's film. No, you said that to me before we Did started, I? yes. <laughs> I think I said it. You said, no, said you said it. We're becoming the same person. No. Yeah. I just mean in terms of the different genres that it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I thought it's really good, and that's out next. That's out on Friday. This coming Friday. I think it's already just come out. It's just come out, and yeah. this. So Operation yeah. Mince Me. This yeah. coming Friday. Outfit is out. Well worth seeing. Really interesting. Don't read plot synopsis in advance. You love an accent. I do love an accent. John and I were talking about. I, I do it all day, every day. I, I'm all right at it. What I do is I'm, I'm, I'm actually, today I just did a regional radio tour, you know, we're publicizing the film at the moment. I found myself talking to Radio Merseyside in a Scouse accent, going a little bit Geordie talking to Radio Newcastle, going, going a bit Scottish, you know, it's not a, it's not a very, it's nothing to be proud of, but uh, I get paid for it, thank God. Uh, but you did the thing. I do do it consistently, I do it all day, every day. I find then that when they say action, you're thinking about what the character's thinking about, and you're not thinking about, I've got to put the accent on as well. Okay, so if you, if you are doing an accent, you stay in that accent, through yeah, and, and there's a, so we, we're just about in the car. There is a shame barrier you have to cross on the first day of going, look, I'm going to do this thing all the time. I know it makes me look disturbed, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it helps me with the work, and I'm sorry. And then sometimes you're having very serious conversations with people about things that matter and count and are vulnerable, you know, off and, and there is a layer of fakery because you're still in an accent somewhere, but after a week or two, or and I've just been doing it for six months, you feel comfortable with it. So you literally just click into it and you just speak in that accent... All yeah. the time, when you call home? No, not when I call home. They <laughs> I did used to do that. Emma went, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I'm like, who am I talking to? So I stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah, I do. That's not my favorite William Hurt line. So I was thinking about it before, that's not my favorite William Hurt. In The Big Chill, in which he's utterly magnificent, yeah. there's a bit where somebody comes down in the morning and he, he's four o'clock in the morning, he's out of his mind on coke and this, his weed and stuff, and he's watching TV and he goes, what's going on? He goes, I don't know, I think the guy in the hat did something bad. And he goes, like what? And he goes, you're so analytical. Sometimes you just have to let art flow over you. That's <laughs> my favorite. The Big Chill, you can watch again. No, I love again The Big Chill, yeah, but Altered States is just, you know, Altered States is the ultimate William Hurt performance. And like I said I didn't play it because it had the F word in it, and now that seems like a redundant choice. I'm sorry, <laughs> I do it, no, I, I do it because I get nervous and it, it always gets a cheap laugh, so fuck it. <laughs> How have you found audience reactions to Operation Mincemeat to be? Because it's a crowd-pleasing movie, isn't it? It's like it's got all the different elements, it's got, you know, there's romance and there's the, the, th the thing when they're talking about the thing that's happening but it's not happening and there's you smoking. being smoking. Yeah. Yeah. How's the, how have the reactions been? I have, I have no idea. I haven't seen it. We'll find out tomorrow night. There's I a think, premiere tomorrow night. I think, because, yeah, I mean, some, I think it's been in, in, in some early preview mm. things but I haven't read anything. I really thought, 
like I love John Madden and I really loved making the film and I really you, you just don't know how it's all going to come together because especially like for us we're not we're not carrying the story we're not there every day and I enjoyed the scenes that I did and you just go is it going to be cool? I don't know. Like, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, no it's one of those, James Cameron took a story of a ship that everybody knows sinks and told a story that kept your interest and intrigue and had romance. And in the same way, everybody knows, thank God, how the war turned out. And they suspect that the body thing is probably going to work out in the end. Spoiler. Uh, and uh, so it's John's great skill and, and uh, Ben McIntyre's script, you know, and, and the actors to take you through and, and make other things intriguing, the romance, the comedy, the, the, f the times it goes wrong and gets retrieved. And, and we haven't seen it with an audience. I, I mean, I read it and thought it was good enough. I wanted to be in it. And loved it. John Madden is a magnificent storyteller. It's a very comfortable set. You feel like this is a guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, call me tomorrow night. I'll tell you how it went. OK, so, so tomorrow night you, you get up on stage for the premiere. A premieres are weird. This isn't a weird thing. You get up on stage before the film starts at a premiere. Yeah. You take a bow. Imagine if people did that in the theatre. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. People go, I don't know, you might be good, you might be, I don't know. It might be shit. That's know. just because if they did it at the end, the, the actors wouldn't have hung around. They'd be gone, they'd be drunk. Well, <laughs> they don't say and watch the films usually. And do you yeah. pay any attention to what critics think? Does it matter? Well, I pay. I genuinely, I pay attention. Yeah, to but you, you have to say that. You're, you're the only critic I listen to. Mostly I, yeah. to disagree with you. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I love reading your reviews because you often um, pick out a film that I thought was great and everyone else disliked, and you, you say something nice about it. So I, I kind of I respect that. Okay. Okay. Look, if a consensus emerges and everybody goes, "This is terrible," then you go, "Maybe it's not quite as good as I hoped it was." Because it's a but individual. It's an individual thing. You know, you're hired for your taste, your individual taste and discretion, and so it depends if you like a particular critic. If you does find it, your views tally. Does it ever hurt? And I ask you this because Johnny, I was very you know mean about Stardust, which I didn't like at all, but I thought you were very good in it. But it, you know, thing. Does it ever? Nice hurt? of you to bring it up, though. No, no. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing it. I'm bringing it up. Conversation was flowing quite nicely. I'm bringing it up in the interest. I didn't interest. read that review. No, no that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> no, but does, I, it, does it ever? Does it? Does it ever sting? Because I, I, of course, does it? No one wants a yeah. bad review. Yeah, that's it, it's horrible. I mean, not just. There was a time when it was reviewers, and now it's anybody at all with a, with a, a keyboard, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, an internet connection, and so you can read, as I have done on stupid nights when I don't control myself, a billion comments where people go, uh, "This is marvelous," and one person go, "I thought his hair looked a bit weird," or that accent's off, and you go, yes. "I should just give up tomorrow." It can ruin your week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, all the time. It's a weird thing. I, I don't read I, them as the answer. I try not yeah, yeah. to read the reviews of things that I'm because. I think the, the, the thing you do it, I do it for the experience of making something and I want to take that away and keep it and yeah. protect it. And I had this experience doing theatre where I was like, I'm, it was the first time I was like, I'm not reading the reviews. And um, I knew I'd been really crap on the first, on the opening <laughs> night. And I just, I bottled it. I got, I, I suffer, sometimes get overwhelmed with nerves and I've, I've, I've slightly overcome that now, but I had that this night and it was a, a big stage. and. And uh, I avoided all the reviews, and I came down to the kitchen, and um, front row was on, and they were talking about my performance, and they were really uh. laying into it. And I had to run across the kitchen to turn the radio off, and they just <laughs> Charlie Finn was awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I try not to. Well, I have to say, also, in terms of all critics, always bear this in mind. The two things that always stick in my mind is I, when I, early on in my career, Nick and I made a documentary about The Exorcist, and there was a review of the documentary in, I think it was The Telegraph, something fairly highbrow, that said, 
The scariest thing about this documentary is that creepy guy that presents it. <laughs> and that's lived, with, that's lived with me ever since. And the other thing is the fact that when I, when I reviewed The Greatest Showman, I said the biggest problem with this film is it doesn't have a memorable tune in it. And it is now oh, the biggest selling soundtrack album of all time, as far as I can tell. So but, critics don't know anything. But there's, there's, a, there's two things. One is I'm completely with Johnny. You, you know, the older I get, even the more this is true, I do the job for the experience. It's never yeah. for the result because you never know what's going to be... Uh, find a home or find an audience. You do it because it's, it's a person or a life or a relationship you want to explore. And then the end results are nothing to do with it. It might be like this, two years later that it comes out. It might be somewhere else. Was it two years so, ago that you shot it? Yeah, it was just before the pandemic. See, that must be the no. weirdest thing, is talking about films that you, you, I mean, you know, two years ago. I know, it also seems like two minutes ago. The, the, it, because, partly because of the lockdown and partly because, I don't know, because I never grow up. I, don't know. I think it's, the, yeah, and it was the last time I saw you and you get back together and you remember yeah, stuff. Like it's nice. But the other thing I was going to say is, uh, when you're a young actor or in the storytelling business, you hear this phrase, dangerous actor, it's a dangerous actor, dangerous filmmaker, and you think, does that mean they punch you too hard in the fight <laughs> scenes or, you know, they, they don't wear pants? What is it? Uh, <laughs> and it's not, it's that people are prepared to make bold choices and live with them okay. uh, as filmmakers, as directors or uh, as actors. And, um, and you might, you know, if you do that, if you swing for the trees, then some people are going to hate it. Maybe everyone's going to hate it, but maybe some people are going to love it. Maybe it's going to land better than other things. And so uh, it, it, if you're not going to make safe choices, if you're going to try and be bold, then you have to expect some people are going to hate it. And that's, uh, that should come with the territory. We should embrace that, I think. Does that make yeah. sense? Well, I, mean, I was at school with Jared Harris, at drama school with Jared Harris. And yeah, Jared, you weren't at school with Jared Harris. No, no. I would have but been at Jared school with him as well. But Jared did some performances that were mind-bogglingly brilliant, just, I mean, heart-stopping, and some which were so far off-piste, it was terrifying. Uh, and that's the definition of dangerous actor. He made these incredible choices that most of us were too fearful to make. I have to say, the thing with Jared Harris, and this was a cause of great embarrassment to me, was in the last show that we did on Radio 5, I'd worked out this fantastic put-down joke that I took several runs at before I got it right. Yes, and I'll do it again now. Here we go. Jared Leto may not be the best actor in the world, but in, what's the film called? Oh, Jesus. Oh. What's he called? Morbius, Mobius. But in Morbius, he's not even the best Jared in the film. Thank you very much. We can, that we was can, a desultory clap, John. <laughs> I read that. This wasn't live. We could fix it in post, but we're done, I'm afraid. So I really enjoyed Operation Mince Me. I thought it was a really good, rousing thriller, and I, you know, I'm sure it's going to go down very, very well with audiences. Thank you both so much for coming to the show. And the outfit is now in cinemas and is really terrific and completely caught me off guard because I didn't know anything about it before I saw it. And it's a really interesting film. So check that out as well. Thank you so much to Johnny and Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And in a packed show tonight. Okay, here is a clip from a documentary that is currently uh, on release in UK cinemas telling the life and story of Don Letts. This is a clip from Rebel Dread. Take a look at this. Don was very, um, techno shit. Nobody. He'll argue where it is, police, whatever. And nothing will stop him. He's as good as the next man. Back in those days, if a black man with a car meant he was a drug dealer, meant he was a pimp, meant that he was a villain. Black guy had a car, pull him over. He must have stolen it. So the landscape, racially, I guess there was a lot of ignorance. And for us, being the generation born and raised here, it wasn't about trying to fit in and be part of it, you know. For none of us, it weren't that. We had a different fight. That was the thing about the racial climate in Britain. It was pretty on fire when it came to you know, dealing with the authorities, like the police and stuff like that. And I guess that would really manifest itself in the first riots in Notting Hill. That day, the riot in Notting Hill Carnival, oh man, I've never been so frightened in my life. Police just was running through the crowd and hitting people. I didn't know what happened, people just started rioting. That riot actually started around the arrest of a pickpocket, or the attempted arrest of a pickpocket. and. Cops jumped in somewhat heavy-handedly, but it wasn't really about the pickpocket. What it was really about was the bullshit that we'd had to put up with the whole rest of the year. This tension was bubbling. You know, it was like a pressure cooker that had to go off. Truth is, we were looking for any excuse to let it out, man. And it might sound like a weird thing to say, but it was a beautiful day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Don Letts. Don, cheers. Pleasure. Don, welcome to the show. So, Rebel Dread. Oh, started already. I've given up. I've literally given up. So, and it's just funny because I was just thinking they've used up the cussing quote. I know, I know. And it's... their take on herbal cigarettes, I would have approached it differently. <laughs> but hey, let's try this thing, man. So, Rebel Dread, which tells your extraordinary story, your time with The Clash, your time with Big Audio Dynamite, your time uh, in Jamaica, no, your, you know, and it is quite the life story, isn't it? If you say so, yeah. I didn't understand. When they came to me with the whole idea, I thought they were fucking... I thought they were crazy. Um, You know, I thought I might make an interesting dinner guest, but a movie? I didn't know, because, you know, I I have a mantra that, you know, in the 21st century, you've got to justify the space you occupy. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure I was going to fulfil my own brief. You know, 
But you started out as a filmmaker. You were the person who was documenting the punk movement yeah. before anybody else. Yeah, but then they swipped, flipped the focus and put it all on me. Because the story for me is about the culture. You know, it's not about me, and I'm a product of that culture. But when the light starts to shine on me, I got, I got very uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable the whole process. It was How? like being in a therapist's couch. How did you find yourself amidst the company of people like The Clash for whom you were, you know, so important? Well, they weren't the mega names that we now know them as. We were just young people trying to do our thing, trying to turn each other on through our respective culture. And, uh, yeah, just chasing the buzz. You know, we weren't... John Lydon wasn't the person he is now. He was just this snotty-nosed kid that liked reggae, you know. And did you, did you have any sense when you were doing that... Did I have any sense? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> did you have any sense when you were doing that early filming that a what sense. you were doing was archiving something no. that was going to be history? No, no, no. I mean, I picked up a camera inspired by the whole DIY thing and basically started the films that were turning me up, the bands that were turning me on. And uh, apparently I had good taste because I'm filming The Clash, The Pistols, Susie and the Banshees, X-Ray Specs. And then, interestingly, I read in the NME... Don Letts is making a punk rock film. I went, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'll call it a film. And that's why it's called the punk rock film. And then I showed it at the ICA, and then from there went on to doing music videos and documentaries, etc., etc. After the pistol split up, you... Can I take that mic? Yeah, of course. Is it working? Yeah. Yes, good. I'll just stay here. No, I've been sat down after, mates, no, no, like, on. So after the pistol split up, yeah. you went with John Lydon to Jamaica. Yeah. I'm going to show a clip for that a minute. How did that come about? Um, as you rightly pointed out, Sex Pistols implode. John's looking for a way to escape the ensuing media madness and gets asked by Richard Branson to accompany him to help him start a reggae label. Right. Me being black and Jamaican, sort of, and John's mate, he asked me to go along with him, and it was the first time I'd ever been in my entire life. And uh, turned out to be the most amazing trip, yeah, in my life. It was like Malice in Gangerland. You know, <laughs> up there I was, surrounded by all these people that I'd only previously seen on, on the back of record labels. You know, it was a trip, man. Can we, can we see that clip from the thing? Have a look. If you want, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Thanks, Don. <laughs> Richard had booked the first floor of the hotel. Why not just get together and live in one love and one identity? You know? And the jungle drums went out. Rich white man in the area signing up reggae artists. Over the next two weeks, there was an exodus to the hotel of artists trying to get a deal with Richard. All of a sudden, I'm sitting around the hotel pool, and there's Iroy, Uroy, Big Youth, The Gladiators, Lee Scratch Perry. Probably the most amazing trip of my life, being surrounded by all my heroes over the space of two weeks. All these names that I'd previously seen on record labels, and I thought were like legendary artists. And I come to Jamaica and I see the reality of their existence. You think these guys would be living large because they'd made records, but au contraire, mon ami. I mean, it was tough. I mean, these guys were all hustling and desperate to get a deal and impress John, because John was the tastemaster. It made me realize that there's no real justice in the music business, man. The real pioneers never get to collect. It's the people that water down their ideas that make the money.
so you say this you say this thing very provocatively you say there is no real justice in the music industry is that is that the case what do you think well i don't know don because i'm not in it no come on you've heard enough horror stories and shit i mean you know like i said exactly what i said in the the film the pioneers the ones that stick by the you know stick by their guns yeah they can't often get left by the wayside and those that follow in their footsteps, water it down, tailor it for the market, they make the money. You but a lot of the pioneers aren't really in it for the money. You know, they try, it's a creative endeavour, not a capitalist one. You also said in that clip that John was the tastemaster, but all the way through the documentary, we see I mean, this kind of reinvention of Don Letts. You know, you start out as this kind of scrappy kid, then... Suddenly- well, yeah, I know, I'm blood clot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do scrappy. But then- you seen a picture of me at school? Come yeah, on. But, but then suddenly you're kind of wearing these kind of, you know, very eye-catching clothes. There's a picture of you with the, you go out and buy an American car. It's like you're constantly reinventing yourself. All the way through that documentary, we see these reinventions of Don Well, hold up a second. You've got to put it in the context of the c- cultural climate. Because the last half of the 20th century, you know, all we had was music and clothes to express ourselves. And we turned that shit into an art form. And, uh, you know, from what is it? Ted's, punk, skinheads, soul boys. That's all part of making me the man I am today. Yeah, yeah. You know. So when you say Ted's punk skin and soul boys, I mean, for me, because I grew up rockabilly and, you know, Ted's... Yeah, we've all got problems, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Rockabilly. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But the thing that I always... No, okay, serious point. The thing that I always loved about Ted stuff was I loved the extravagance of... I mean, I've got a huge drape coat collection. And actually, of course... Clothes were cool, attitudes sucked. Yeah, but but how often is that the case? That it's like, you know, you can take a bit of the style that you like, but you don't take on board everything else Absolutely right, because within all these movements, there's X amount of cool people and X amount of dickheads. It's the nature of large groups, you know. And all the way through that documentary, that's what you're doing. You're like magpieing the bit that you like from a certain movement and leaving behind the stuff that you don't. I think that's what's caused your career to have the continuation that it's had. Career confusing. Um, Listen, man, I've just tried to be honest about what I like. I've always railed against being defined by my colour. Yeah, and I've just been honest, you know, when my white mates are like, why are you listening to that Led Zeppelin shit? I'll be like, because it strikes a chord. I don't know why, but I like it. And for me, it's always been this culture clash, you know, us becoming closer by understanding our differences yeah, yeah. rather than trying to be the same. Yeah. You know, I'm of I'm that generation where I... It might sound naive now, I still believe in music as a tool for personal and social change. It made me. I asked you to pick two films. I asked you to pick a guilty pleasure and a film that changed your life. I'm going to change the order that we're going to do them in because that clip of you going to Jamaica, the film that you chose as film that changed your life is Harder They Come. Yep. Um, let me show a clip from Harder They Come, and then I want to ask you why it is that that film is so important. Okay, yep. so here we go. <laughs> Take one more. Flim finish. 
I'm not going to get them. How about tomorrow evening or so? No. But it will take me at least a... No. All right, come this way. Lots one, that? Yes. Kids, it's busy. Okay, I'll wait. By the way, you catch a wild guy yet? I don't hear any news about him, but I don't want him to catch him. I like the excitement. The boy is great. All right, you can come in. I know we came in earlier than you wanted us to, and then the director and you were saying, come in later on. But, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. okay, why, why did The Harder They Come change your life? Um, I saw that film in 1972 when it came out over here in the UK, Brixton. It was the classic cinema. Yeah, yeah. And again, context, I'm what you call first generation British born black. Kind of rolls off the tongue now. But it was a confusing concept back then. But we knew what we sounded like because we had a soundtrack. Mm -hmm. We had the reggae. But there was no visual accompaniment other than, you know, cheap postcards from Jamaica of some dude riding a donkey on a beach in a, with a straw hat, or somebody limbo dancing. But then that changed with the advent of two things, the arrival of Bob Marley and this film, How Do They Come? And I remember sitting in the audience, you know, being struck by the power of cinema to inform, entertain, and inspire. And remember thinking quite clearly, I'd like to express myself in some kind of visual medium. But in the early 70s, for a young black man, that was kind of a ridiculous idea. It was an old white boy's network. Fast forward five years, the punk rock thing explodes with the whole DIY thing. You know, my white mates are picking up guitars. I wanted to pick up something too. So I picked up a Super 8 camera and reinvented myself as Don Letts, the filmmaker. So Harder They Come is the thing that told you, this is something that I can do. This is something that I love. <laughs> It showed me a direction, and it was with the inspiration of the whole punk rock attitude and spirit that I got the thing together. And do you think, because it's interesting, because I watched it again just before we did this, and I've done an intro to it for the BFI. It's amazing how raw it still looks. It still looks completely authentic. Yeah, and it's totally punk rock in its creation. I mean, you know, there's a fight scene in there. I was reading up on it in an attempt to be professional like yourself today. And the fight scene is a fight scene that lasts, I don't know, for a minute and a half, but it was yeah. shot over like six weeks because of all the production problems. And the other thing we've got to give, give it props for is that it single-handedly helped to break reggae internationally with its yeah, soundtrack. Absolutely. You know, but I think the thing that really inspired me was its representation of the Jamaican people themselves. Because I think the reason it went down so well is it was the first time that they saw themselves truly represented on screen and not watered down. I'm going to bring the show to a close in a moment by asking you for your guilty pleasure. Before I do that, I want to ask you a, a sort of serious question. Because of the role that you've played in things like punk, in the career of The Clash, in Big Audio Dynamite, in defining the way that pop videos, modern pop videos look, do you ever feel like you're carrying a cultural weight does it feel like a burden or does it feel liberating? Fucking hell. <laughs> you know what's funny? As I said when we started this conversation, I didn't get what the fuss was about. You know, it's funny when I see all this legendary 
British counterculture. I don't recognise that person. I don't feel like that person when I'm on the 52 bus. But between my book, which came out last year, There in Black Again, that was a plug, and this film, I've come to recognise that for whatever reason, my work seems to resonate with X amount of people. And that gives it meaning. And that's all I need. Well, I don't mind being paid as well. But no, it gives it meaning. And I've, through the book and the film, I've come to, yeah, I have to own it. Okay. Yeah. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, the only discernible talent I've got is good taste. <laughs> but apparently in the 21st century, that's some serious currency. Very good. So let me ask you, before we move on to finish with your guilty pleasure, you think I have taste? <laughs> well, you've got me on the show. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we're going to bring this to close with your guilty pleasure, because it's a musical thing. What was the guilty pleasure that you chose? Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes! <laughs> Come on! What do, you, what do you love about Guardians of the Galaxy and why is it a guilty oh, pleasure? Oh, man. I've got to explain myself. That's where it gets pear-shaped. Man, listen, you know, I'm in uh, American art house and European intellectual cinema and all the rest of it. Sometimes I just want to escape. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's, that's half of cinema's job sometimes. And I don't think you could do it better than this. The, you know, between the sound effects, the characters, Groot, I love Groot. <laughs> And oh, I'll tell you what else, obviously, funny enough, the obvious connection, like A Harder They Come, is the integral use of music throughout the film. Yeah, exactly. It kind of gives it the kind of, what is it, cultural resonance, connects um, was the Star, what's his name? Star-Lord to the Earth. And the, the way they interact, the music in Heart of the Film and vice versa, it's brilliant, man. And you know, I've got to take umbrage with um, Mr. Scorsese for writing off these Marvel films. Because when Groot died, I felt that shit. And that's got to be a testament to cinema, to be able to have a tree, a talking god... Well, maybe not to me, actually. <laughs> you know, I come to think of it, I didn't really think about that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, to be able to create a character that you can invest your time and emotional content to the extent of where you can actually... I was, I was devastated by Groot's death. You know, and it's humorous. And I think it's absolutely... Brilliant. Well, I agree with you. And it takes me back to my childhood as well, that innocence before... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we all and got science fiction and fantasy yeah, yeah. is something which always connects with that. So, we're going to finish the show <coughs> with the opening of Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to bid you farewell now. At the moment, Rebel Dread is still playing in cinemas. I would encourage people to go and check it out because it is worth seeing on the big screen because there's so much great archive footage in it. And uh, please join me in thanking the great Don Letts. Thank you. It's been a roller coaster of a show, hasn't it? <laughs> okay, let's finish with the opening from Guardians of the Galaxy. I want to end by saying that. We've had uh, an intern who's been working for us for the last uh, nine months, and she's off to a fabulous job in the film industry. Please, very quickly, welcome to the stage, Shan, where are you? 
Where are you? Cool. We couldn't have done it without you. We will miss you terribly. Congratulations on your fantastic new job. This is a year's membership to the BFI to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to all our guests. Uh, thanks to uh, Antonetta, whose film is currently in cinemas. Thanks to Eddie. You can see the series on TV very soon and the horror movies on Netflix. Thanks to Johnny and Jason. It's in cinemas on Friday. And thanks to the force of nature that is Don Letts. Right, everybody out. Thank you. Good night. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed that edition of MK3D recorded live at the BFI South Bank. If you like the sound of the show and you want to come along in person, then you can get tickets from the BFI website. Next week is the last ever Kermit on Film podcast in which I'll be talking to Jack Howard. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.